Welcome to the second episode of the Silver Screen Superman podcast series through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. As mentioned in our first episode, this podcast series will be going through monthly, looking at the different Silver Screen incarnations of Superman. Now, last month we looked at the Fleischer cartoons. This month we're going to be looking at the famous Studios cartoons. A lot of people are maybe wondering what's the difference. They may have heard of the Fleischers, but not necessarily the famous studios. The differences are subtle to a lot of people, but they are fairly significant. As mentioned last time, Max and Dave Fleischer were two major players in the Fleischer studios. That said, these brothers didn't necessarily get along. Uh, Dave Fleischer led a lifestyle that Max Fleischer didn't approve of, but they were still working together and producing some very excellent short subject cartoons. The Superman shorts were not only innovative in terms of the animated shorts, but they were also innovative in terms of bringing the notion of Superman and understanding the concept of Superman and bringing that out to the masses. If you're doing the Superman movie today, you can go back through all the other incarnations, through the cartoons, the TV series, through the radio show, and figure out what elements worked, which ones didn't. You can look at 75 years of comic book history and figure out what stories that people responded to, which elements would come forward now. When the Fleischers were doing their work, they had two to three years worth of history to build from. They were the first time Superman was seen in motion. He went from the comic book page to the radio show and then into their cartoon shorts. So this was very much a trial by fire and working things out. And as mentioned last time, the Fleischers established a lot of what we were seeing with Superman. Unfortunately, the Fleischer Studios story didn't end well. They were signed up with Paramount Pictures, so they would produce the cartoons and Paramount would distribute. But Paramount effectively took over the studios in what amounts to a hostile takeover. Now the details of that can be found in Out of the Inkwell, Max Fleischer and the Animation Revolution. It's a book by Richard Fleischer, who's actually the son of Max Fleischer and a very accomplished director in his own right. And it's available through the University of Press of Kentucky, ISBN 0-8131-23550. I highly recommend it. It's a very interesting read. The relevant chapters basically amount to finding that Paramount came in with a hostile takeover. Basically strong-armed Max Fleischer into handing over not just the studios, but his patents, some of which were not even declared in the studio name, but were in his own personal name. He did so initially thinking we could sort it out later. Again, he liked to think the best of people, and that's not necessarily always going to be the case. And Paramount basically demanded his resignation. And they took over the cartoons. So the first nine cartoons produced through the studios were directed by Dave Fleischer. Now, even though Max and Dave weren't talking, Dave also resigned from the studios. May or may not have been through pressure from Paramount. I don't know those details. They're not included in the book. What we do know is that instead of having a single director with a vision to keep everything consistent, we ended up with three different directors working on these last eight cartoons, uh, one of whom was Seymour Kneidel or Kneitel. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his last name. I've only ever seen it in print, K-N-E-I-T-E-L, but he was Max's son-in-law, and he had a family he had a wife, he had the kids. So when Max was talking about taking legal action against Paramount, well, his son-in-law Seymour was still working for Paramount, and it was made clear to Max that if he pushed it and took the case to court, uh, that Seymour's livelihood and his employment would be in jeopardy. And it was not particularly easy to get work again at this time. This was happening in 1942, so this was after the Pearl Harbor bombing, this is after the United States joined World War II, which had already started in other parts of the world when all this began. And that caused a 
bit of a shift in terms of the resource distribution in the United States. So we're seeing a lot fewer feature films. So theater exhibitors were depending a lot more on serials and short subjects that were before the features to attract new viewers and to draw more people in. So people would be you know, coming to see Gone with the Wind for the third time because there was something new before it, and also because Gone with the Wind is good. So they really depended on these short subjects to keep things afloat, but it also meant people were cutting it very close, keeping the budgets down. They weren't necessarily hiring new talent, it was more using the talent they have and stretching it out. So had Seymour lost his job, it's very likely he would have been unable to get a new job in his chosen field, at least until after the war ended. And at this point, nobody knew how long that was going to be. So Paramount came in, took over the Fleischer Studios, rebranded at the Famous Studios. They kept a lot of the existing staff on board, so they kept the lead animators. They kept Sammy Timberg, who's a bit of an unsung hero of these cartoons. He did the fully orchestrated scores. In the first nine cartoons, they were original scores, start to finish, running through the entire topic. In the Famous Studios cartoons, they start off that way, but there was a clear degradation in terms of quality, or at the very least, budget spent on these cartoons. So while the Fleischers were spending enormous amounts of money on these cartoons, because they didn't initially want them and asked for an obscene amount of money, and Paramount decided to pay it, they were putting out huge, huge numbers. World War II started, things changed, Paramount took over the studio, rebranded it Famous with the same staff, just new management, new directors, and they started running things on their own. There's also a big shift in the story content. So in the first cartoon branded Famous Studios, this one is called Japa Tours. It's also the first time Superman deals with anything related to World War II. Even at the time, Siegel and Schuster, when they were writing the comics, even before America got involved in World War II, they recognized the problem with having a character like Superman involved in World War II. Because as soon as a character like Superman is involved, the question is, why doesn't he end the war in the next few days? This is a character who can tear through the opponent armies and at no personal threat to himself, so he could just rip through ship after ship, plane after plane. That's part of the issue that they have here. There's also a degradation in storytelling compared to what the Flesh has been putting out with all their product, not just Superman. And looking at it through today's eyes, we can also see a shift in the way Famous was storing and treating their films. The nine shorts that are available that were made by the Fleischers can be found on even cheap DVDs in pretty high quality. You can go out, spend five or six bucks on a DVD that's just the Superman cartoons, the Fleischer and Famous Studios together. You can also spend five or seven bucks in a Target or Walmart or big box store and get the complete set. Uh, There's an official Blu-ray set that's more than the five or ten dollars that came out on October 30th of 2012, and that has all the cartoons as restored as much as possible, just as they were on the uh, Superman film anthology 8-disc Blu-ray set that was released previously. If you're looking at these, you can see those first nine Fleischer Studios cartoons are very well preserved. There's very little signs of damage or any sort of scarring on the film stock itself, so you could find prints in very good condition. On the other hand, even the fully restored Warner Brothers Blu-ray release has visible damage on these last eight. Now, just my own personal background, I spent some time working as a projectionist to pay my way through high school in the first few years of university, and you get to know what kind of film damage you see and what it means. In this case, the damage is all sort of a scatter shot, so you have a variety of scrapes and scratches. It's not a straight line down, which indicates it was just one print run through a projector. When it's scattered like this, that's indicative of dust and scoring 
on the film itself. It's also in a variety of colors, which means it had had a chance to dig through multiple layers of emulsion, which means it was stored tightly while dirty. It's not a good way to store film in the long term. Film is typically cleaned before it's locked away, or at least it was in the classic film days. A lot of it is being stored digitally now. But this, again, speaks to the level of respect that the bill payers had for the product they were producing. The fact that there's this much scoring and this much damage basically indicates they didn't particularly care about preserving it. They were worrying about getting their buck today. It wasn't about the art, it was about the business, which is a big shift between the Fleischer Studios and the famous studios. We see that in the stories. So again, this first one, this Japa Tours, it's got some very caricatured stereotypes of the Japanese, which was not at all uncommon during wartime. But there's also action sequences where Superman is fighting people and instead of having his arm bent at the elbow with two rigid pieces, his arm curves and flexes like it's made of rubber, which is again evidence that they're using less rotoscoping and having more freehand animation done, which is not uncommon, but it is cheaper and produces lower quality animation. It starts to look more like a, a cartoon character and less like a realistic rendition. But on the upside, this also has the first on-screen plane rescue for Superman. In this story, the Japanese infiltrators have stolen a giant bomber from the U.S. to bring to the Japanese, and Superman brings it down. Part of the process is the Japanese saboteurs sabotage the controls when they realize Superman is not going to let them take this back to Japan, and send it crashing into the city. So Superman's out there flying, catching the airplane, bringing it down safely, and rescues of airplanes have been big parts of the Superman mythos. It was a big part well, the helicopter rescue was a huge part of the Richard Donner film we're going to be talking about later. There's also a scene with Air Force One. There's a scene in the John Byrne reboot of the comics that was post the Infinite Crisis in the 1980s. There's another great sequence that we're talking about in Superman Returns when we get there. A lot of this was established, and a lot of it came through, and this was the template. This was the first high-action airplane rescue on screen. As we go through the other cartoons, we're seeing a lot of similar elements. So both Japanese and Nazis are coming into the forefront in terms of the villains, which again was a sign of the times. It's not necessarily that the Fleischers wouldn't have done that, but it is a sign that just be, by the prevalence of it, that Paramount through Famous Studios seemed much more concerned with getting that buck in today, which again at the time may have been flat-out survival. Unfortunately, that also means that their stories were not as well-crafted as they had been in the past. So before when Max and Dave, even if they weren't speaking to each other, they'd still pass memos back and forth talking about story points and indicating what elements need to be changed. I don't think that the stories had that same caring level of attention. For example, in the 11th hour, when Clark and Lois have been interned in a Japanese camp, Superman breaks out at 11 p.m. each night and sabotages their war effort, which the viewer understands this is why he's allowed himself to be captured. But this ends up opening huge questions. One of the things that the Japanese do to try and prevent Superman from continuing the sabotage is by pulling Lois out of the internment during one of these assaults and threatening, saying, warning Superman, one more act of sabotage, and the American woman reporter the American Girl reporter, will be killed immediately. There's no sign that they even realize that Clark Kent is not interned, and he's not still in his room. Which begs the question, why didn't they look? We also don't know the circumstances before this that led to Clark and Lois's capture to indicate why Lois doesn't pick up on the fact that Superman has fallen them around. It's just one of those stories where it's enjoyable in the moment, but if you step back and say, how did he keep his secret identity? The whole thing falls apart. So we also see an attempt 
to establish a character that wasn't particularly successful. In two of these cartoons, namely Showdown and Destruction Incorporated, there's a character that's pulled from the comics. Now, at the time, the character in the comics didn't have a name, he didn't have a personality. He had appeared in five or six issues, just because he was fun to draw, but he only had one spoken line. It's just a little copy boy, red hair, bow tie, just a little bit goofy. Now, he would eventually be known as Jimmy Olsen when Jimmy was very popular on the radio show, he would carry through and take on that persona in the comics, even though Jimmy on the radio show was described as, you know, completely different character, stocky, blonde, you know, just clearly not the one that was drawn in the comics. Here they named him Lewis purely for comic relief and used him as sort of a goofy sidekick in a couple of these cartoons, which really doesn't fit the tone that had been established when it was still Max and Dave producing them. The cartoons continued and Again, this was a variety of villains, but when six out of eight of them are about Axis powers and Axis spies, they tend to get a little bit monotonous. Especially when, again, we have cartoons where Clark goes undercover as a night watchman, Lois sees through his disguise of gray hair, gray mustache, and glasses, and knows immediately it's Clark, but then we're wondering why can't she see through just the glasses and recognize Superman. They also have some questions when they're fighting with the Nazis, who have infiltrated a South American jungle tribe to get valuable papers, why would the Nazis expect the papers to land in this jungle tribe? They're only there because the Allied plane was shot down when the flight path just happened to take them over that area. There were still some scenes established, but we were losing the effect of lighting. Uh, by the end of the series, we weren't even getting original scores start to finish from Sammy Timberg. You can actually hear them cutting and pasting scores made for other cartoons and just splicing them on top of this. So the production budgets came way, way down in the process, which is probably why only eight further cartoons were made. If you go back and look at the cartoons at the time, they were one of the most successful forms of the media because people would go to see the new Bugs Bunny short or the new Popeye short or the, the new Superman short, but they wouldn't necessarily go for anything else. So this was enough of a draw that it could bring in feature type money without a feature type budget. The fact that basically famous studios fell apart and Paramount came out of the cartoon business is a sign regarding how well it was accepted by audiences, particularly when Warner Brothers and Disney continued on on their own. So that wraps up the first few silver screen appearances of Superman, running from 1941 to 1943. So this is just the first five years of the character. It'd be five more years before he appeared on the silver screen again, even though he was running pretty much continuously on the radio show in between. And that's what we'll be talking about next month in the first serial starring Kirk Allen, in which Superman faces off against the Spider Lady. Please join us next month.